Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, radio host Lee Garrett has received a death threat and some nasty vandalism has him worried. With a faltering career and a recent divorce, he's forced to seriously reevaluate his life. Now, Chapter 8. Now there's Florida the way I remember it. Lee tossed a photograph back across the table to land in front of Michaela. It was a bus window view of a flat and featureless landscape flanking one of the highways in the Orlando area. Lee had been to Orlando once on his way to Cape Canaveral. The airport was scenic, with aircraft taxiways that circled around ponds and marshes and over highway lanes, but the highways from there to the coast offered little but scrub growth and swampland. The crease in Michaela's face didn't quite make it into a smile. The area around Disney World is gorgeous, and you know it. The Disney World photos looked like every picture he'd ever seen of the place, except the tourists posing beside the costumed characters and famous attractions wore faces he knew. No shots of Robert Farrell, though. Michaela would have removed those. There was no hiding the man's presence. Someone had to have taken the pictures. Michaela hadn't wanted to show them to Lee at all. Jason had insisted. Then the boy quickly lost interest, as if sharing the experiences wasn't what he cared about, only seeing Lee's reaction to them. Some kind of punishment? Lee wondered. He made a point of showing more enthusiasm about the pictures than he really felt to please Michaela. Damn, I almost forgot the Christmas presents. Jason had a bemused look as he opened the individually wrapped bits of fishing tackle and read the home-printed gift certificate. That's great, Dad. Do you mean it? Of course I mean it. Let's make it a canoe fishing trip. Kill two fish with one stone. Michaela insisted that whatever dates they chose, she'd work around it. She was also impressed with the music book for Sarah. Lee could see it in her eyes, although she was careful not to imply criticism of his past gifts. Maybe the kids weren't the only ones growing up. The cold cuts and fresh bakery buns he'd picked up for lunch went uneaten. Michaela and Jace had stopped at McDonald's on the way. His morning spent trying to make the apartment as presentable as possible was probably a waste, too. Michaela's mere presence made the ancient rooms look shabby. He couldn't persuade her to stay for a dinner of Kentucky Fried Chicken, one of Jason's favorites. She needed to help Sarah get ready for her ski trip. Once, when Jason was in the bathroom, Lee almost told her about the hate letter and the vandalism. She would have given him sympathy, but that was a poor substitute for what he really needed from her and could never have again. He walked her out to the car through a light snowfall. Thanks for coming, Michaela. It's been nice. Just because I screwed up, doesn't mean we have to be at each other's throats the rest of our lives. That would make all of our time together a mistake, and it wasn't that, was it? No, Lee, it wasn't. She gave a tentative smile. I don't know what's different this time, but I'm glad I came. Take care of yourself. She leaned forward and brushed his cheek with her lips. You too. Drive carefully. As the car rolled down the street, he caught a flicker of movement in the window of the apartment. Had Jason seen the goodbye kiss? It would be best if he didn't get his hopes up. Jason was a zombie in the studio the next morning, endangering his jaw muscles with the force of his yawns, even overcoming his dislike of coffee. When nine o'clock came, Lee teased, You look like you could use a little nap. Yeah, well, I've heard that you don't need as much sleep when you get old. 
I heard that, too. I'm still hoping it comes true. The station's sales and copy departments were closed over the holidays, so there weren't any commercials for Lee to record. While he was packing his show materials away in his locker, Jason reached into Lee's briefcase and picked up a small spray bottle of concentrated breath freshener. "'Gee, Dad, you in the habit of sneaking babes into the booth with you, or what?' He tossed the bottle in his palm. "'Morning men got to fight morning breath?' He shot a few squirts in Lee's direction as if to ward off an offending bug. "'Listen, smartass,' Lee took a grinning step toward him with palm outstretched. "'I have to go to a lot of special—' He choked off in mid-sentence as his nostrils recoiled in shock. His throat suddenly felt on fire, and his eyes streamed tears. "'Dad, what's wrong? Dad, what is it?' The boy's frightened hands grabbed his shoulders, but Lee tugged away, sliding along the counter, coughing convulsively. He stumbled to a chair and hung over the back of it, then fumbled in his pocket for a Kleenex to wipe the fluid from his nose and lips. Jason's voice began to penetrate the fog of shock, and through a watery blur, Lee saw the panic in his son's face. "'Dad, you all right? Do you need an ambulance?' "'Okay.' He waved a hand through the air, his voice a harsh croak. I'll be okay. In a minute. He blew his nose again and leaned weakly on his knees. Then he slowly straightened, blinking hard and dabbing at his eyes with a fresh tissue. The acrid odor spoke of scrubbed floors, hospital stairwells. Someone had filled his breath spray bottle with bleach. Numbed, he leaned on the edge of the desk, not trusting his legs. Poison. Corrosive poison. If Jason hadn't discovered it by mistake, Lee would have sprayed the stuff right into his mouth. The thought made him gag again, and he hung his head over the trash can for a couple of minutes. "'What did I do, Dad? Was it the bottle? I thought it was breath spray. God, Dad, I just thought it was breath spray.' "'It's okay, Jace. It's okay. Not your fault. I, I used one of those bottles at home for some bleach, to spray mildew and stuff. Guess I must have accidentally switched them.' It hurt like hell to talk, and it hurt to lie, but the truth, he couldn't burden the boy with that. Stupid of me. I'll get rid of it when we get home. He fished a discarded plastic bag out of the trash and wrapped the bottle in it, then put it in his briefcase. Maybe there'd be fingerprints. Something. Jason was too relieved to see the holes in the story. Man, if only I hadn't sprayed it at you. No way, no way you could have known. Anyway, you might have saved me from something even worse. You should see a doctor. No, I'm okay now. I'm fine. But when he saw the look on his son's face, he said, All right, just give me a minute in the bathroom. He flushed his eyes with running water and rinsed his mouth and throat the best he could, then got a drink from the water cooler. He was half afraid that it would make him vomit, but he was spared the pain of that. The hospital ER doctor cleared him of any serious damage, but warned him to come back if the cough didn't go away. Lee left most of their pizza dinner untouched and found it hard to concentrate on the Batman movie they watched afterward. The irony of the choice wasn't lost on him. Hollywood loved the myth of the vigilante, the crime victim who turned into an avenging demon exacting violent justice upon his persecutors. Life wasn't like that. Victims felt fear, shame, helplessness, were forced to face the fragility of their small lives, knew themselves for cowards. Vengeance delivered at the point of a gun was the stuff of adolescent fantasy. An adult knew better. It was a sign of maturity to know your limits, to accept reality. At least, that's what you told yourself in the dark silence of the night. His throat was still so raw the next morning that it hurt to talk. 
His hand shook as he reached for his small bottle of chloroseptic, hoping it would numb the pain. He tested it three times into the air before he could bring himself to spray it into his mouth. After the show, he dropped Jason off at the bus station. That brought him a different pain. Give Sarah my love, okay? I guess she's really busy. Yeah, especially now she's got a boyfriend. What? She never mentioned that. Well, he really likes her, but she's mostly too busy for him. God, Lee thought that story was painfully familiar. Should he say something to his daughter? Would she even welcome fatherly advice? Or was it already too late? There's no need to tell your mom about the breath spray. I'll be all right. She doesn't need any more reasons to think I'm a klutz. She doesn't think you're stupid, Dad, Jason replied. She just says you've never really known what you wanted. The boy went up the stairs and disappeared down the aisle. Lee stood there long after the bus had gone. You might have died if you'd sprayed that stuff down your throat. Maddie Ellis's eyes were white circles. She brushed a hand slowly through her hair. Jesus, harassment is one thing. We're talking about attempted murder here. They might still have been trying to scare me. Figured I'd notice the smell before I actually sprayed it into my mouth. Bullshit. You're calling the police and you're not taking no for an answer. I'll call a staff meeting. Get everyone watching for strangers in the building. I can't believe any of our people could be involved. I don't know what to believe anymore. He left her staring into space and went to find a phone, hoping he'd reach a more helpful cop. You say you called before, Mr. Garrett? The woman repeated the date he'd mentioned, and he heard the tapping of a keyboard. There's no record of that call. Well, would there be? I mean, he took down a few details at first, but it didn't go any further. Would he have kept a record of that? We're supposed to keep a record of all incoming calls from the public, certainly any calls that might involve a crime. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. Look, can you patch me to the chief's line? I'm certain there's no need to bother the chief, Mr. Garrett. I'm not looking to get you into trouble, officer. You've been helpful. I know the chief personally. I'd like to speak to him, please. There was a long hesitation, then a click. Good morning, Chief Gavin's office. Morning, Janie. It's Lee Garrett. Has your hand recovered from the Big Brother's bowling night? You mashed it pretty hard, as I recall. Lee, hi. Oh, it's fine. Bowling balls and my skinny fingers don't make a good combination. Were you looking to speak to the chief? He's on another line. Oh, he's just hung up. I'll put you through. The booming voice of Art Gavin came on the line. Lee, how the hell are you? Haven't drained any bars dry since the Big Brothers thing, I hope. You know I can't arrange bail. Lee laughed. After shooting the breeze a bit, he told his story. Jesus, Lee, that's assault causing bodily harm and maybe even attempted murder. The chief's chummy tone vanished, and he was all business. And you say there's no record of your first call? Just a minute. I'll have Janie get me the shift schedule. He came back on the line after a little more than a minute. Yeah, I thought it might have been a trainee, he said. But one of my sergeants was supervising, a man named Fred Dieter. He should have caught that. Fred Dieter. That explained a lot. A hell of a lot. I don't know what to say, chief. Dieter and I aren't exactly the best of friends. What do you mean? You and Dieter... Oh, shit, yeah, now I remember. His voice took on a harder edge. You made the man look like quite an asshole. He probably deserved it, but I don't like any of my men. I know, Chief, and I'm sorry. I'm sure Dieter is still pissed at me. Can't even say I blame him. That's no excuse for him to stonewall you. I'll have to bring him into the office. Please don't do that. 
Maybe he was right when I called the first time. It was only a threat, and I didn't even have the note anymore. The other things, well, they could have been coincidences. If the cop got another reprimand, he might really want to cause Lee some grief. I appreciate that, Lee, but he not only acted on a grudge, he involved one of my younger officers. I can't let that go. In the meantime, I'll send one of my detectives over to see you. Tomorrow, okay? Thanks, Chief. I really appreciate the help. Call me Art, and if you have any more problems with the department, call me directly. But, Lee, be careful. Sudbury isn't the sleepy town it used to be. He'd just finished reading the last commercial script of the morning when Mel Smythe told him he'd been paged to the lobby. Probably the detective, he thought, and realized that his hands were sweaty, his mouth dry. He felt like a schoolboy called to the principal's office. There was a blonde-haired woman in a severe suit studying the Lee Garrett cardboard cutout, but no cop that he could see. He leaned over the reception desk to get Karen's attention. She finished transferring a call and said, Detective Davis is here to see you, she pointed behind him. Mr. Garrett, the blonde woman asked, extending her hand. I'm Detective Sergeant Davis. Lee finally reacted and shook her hand. Uh, thanks for coming, Detective Sergeant. Yes, I am a woman, Mr. Garrett. Her mouth turned slightly upward, but it transmitted no warmth to the eyes. Is that a problem for you? He sighed. No, Detective Davis, that is not a problem. Yes, I was expecting a man, but I think we've got more important things to discuss, don't you? She didn't answer right away. Where can we speak privately? This way. The boardroom wasn't being used, so they chose one end of the long table. As Lee closed the door, Davis opened her briefcase to pull out some forms and a small digital sound recorder. Normally, a uniform officer would be doing this with a video camera. You're getting special treatment, she said. Consider me flattered. Is that the chief's doing? I'd prefer to think that the case was bumped up to CID because of the combination of serious vandalism and a threat against your life. She must have seen the blank look on his face. Criminal Investigations Department, the Detective Division. He nodded. She switched on the recorder, and he went through the whole ordeal one more time. It was uncomfortable, but her approach was thoroughly professional, and he felt his confidence rise. His first impression had placed her as ten years younger than himself, but a closer inspection revealed the lines traced by life. Straw blonde hair, cropped short, framed a face that was slightly too square to be really pretty, but then she wore no makeup. The drab suit didn't hide the fact that she was in excellent shape with a well-proportioned figure. Her best feature was a pair of clear blue eyes crested by long, pale lashes and set off by eyebrows that were a shade or two darker than her hair. It was a striking combination. There was a plain gold band on her left hand, the only jewelry he could see. He realized that he'd gone from resentment to an appraisal of this police officer as a potential bedmate. She would not be amused. Was anyone's job affected when you started the morning show? Doug Rhodes filled in for a month or so after the last morning host moved away, and I know he wanted to keep that time slot. They hired me instead, but he wouldn't pull something like this. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone, but obviously the people who work in this building had the greatest opportunity to leave the note and tamper with your things. What about your competitors? Could they want you out of the way that badly? Enough to kill me? Lee's laugh had a bitter edge. Not any more. What do you mean by that? I mean, when I came to town, I knocked Ron Wayne at CMOR off his throne, and they've never been the same. Now... Let's just say I'm not the king of the hill either. 
Maybe they still blame you. Look somewhere else, detective. When people say radio is a cutthroat business, they don't mean it literally. Why aren't you asking more about the skins? It seems obvious that the note was from them. Does it? I don't think there's any established connection at all, except that whoever did write the note had heard your joke on the air. This young man at the United Way luncheon, Van Horn, did he strike you as a gang member? I don't really hang with enough gang members to know. Do you have a problem with me, Mr. Garrett? Would you prefer to deal with someone else? I... no, detective, sorry. This whole thing is getting on my nerves, and I guess I just don't see where all of your questions are leading. They're leading in the direction of whoever tried to hurt you, by eliminating the wrong directions. He looked into her eyes for a moment, then nodded. All right, what else do you want to know? Do you owe anyone any money? Only the bank. I don't think I actually own anything anymore. They just let me use it. No large gambling debts? No one would let me near a game. Don't buy into the myth that radio pays big bucks. Not here it doesn't. Not in this company? Not in a city this size. It's the myth that everybody believes. We work five hours a day and get paid like movie stars. Not true? Not even close. Sure, in cities like Toronto, a difference of a few share points in the ratings can mean thousands, even millions of dollars in revenue, so they pay big money to their stars. For everybody else, it's supply and demand. Everybody thinks they can be a radio jock. Some people take college courses for it only to find out there are hardly any jobs. So they either give up on the dream or they swallow their pride and accept a pathetic paycheck. Even with years of experience, you don't have a lot of bargaining power when there are dozens of people begging to take your job for less money. Veteran miners and teachers make more than I do. You're not serious. I don't find it funny enough to joke about. His face spoke as clearly as his words. Anyway, if I owed money, wouldn't a little note with a picture of a baseball bat be a simpler means of persuasion? Are you married? Speaking of bats, no, divorced. Difficulties with any women recently, or one-night stands? You mean something like fatal attraction? You'd be surprised how often broken relationships turn into harassment or stalking. It's certainly a whole lot more common than individual problems with street gangs. But most people don't call gang members morons on air. I'll ask our intelligence unit about the skins. She checked her notes. The forensics identification unit would have gone over your car, but since it's been repainted... Well, I couldn't keep driving it that way. She nodded. The FIU will check this spray bottle for fingerprints, too. I need to take your prints now so they can be eliminated from the findings. And do you have anything with your son's prints on them? The coffee mug he was using should still be in the control room. I'll get it. Don't worry, I'll only touch the inside. When he returned with the mug, Davis put it in a plastic baggie and set it in her case beside the breath spray. Not much to go on, Lee said. We'll send the bottle to the Center for Forensic Science in Toronto to be analyzed. Maybe it's more than bleach. We might get lucky. He sensed the interview was at an end, and as he stood to open the door, he said, The answer to your question is no. Pardon me? No relationships, no one-night stands, nothing. Then he realized how pathetic it sounded. She was already walking up the hallway. He held the outside door for her and said, Do you have a first-name detective? Cheryl. Well, thanks for coming, and for your thoroughness. I'm grateful. She nodded. Maybe we're not all incompetent, Mr. Garrett. Then she turned and walked to her car. 
She'd wanted him to know she remembered Fred Dieter's humiliation at his hands. Was she also saying she was on Dieter's side? That the badge made them kin? That he shouldn't expect any real help? He hoped that wasn't true. He'd sensed an integrity and intelligence in her even as she'd sparred with him. If she gave him the runaround, too, he didn't know where else to turn. She'd also stirred up some unwelcome thoughts about his relationships with women over the past couple of years. There weren't many, and only two had lasted longer than one date. One of those was a lawyer, the other a director of a local charity. Then there was Maddie Ellis. A one-night stand in a sexual sense. What if her husband Ray had found out about them? No, that was ludicrous. If he could suspect Maddie or Ray, then anyone was a suspect. But then, maybe that was the problem. Next time in Chapter 9 of Dead Air, a work commitment on a bitterly cold New Year's Eve turns into a sudden crisis that could mean the death of Lee Garrett. If you can't wait until then, pick up a copy of Dead Air through my website, scottoverton.ca, and learn more about the radio world, too. In the meantime, thanks for joining me, and thanks to audionautics.com for the music. I'm Scott Overton. Scott Overton.